agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government of the government love. The government of the government love. The government. Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Trey Orndorff, a political scientist at Oklahoma Christian University, and I'm joined by the professor of law at Chase Law School, Ken Katkin. Ken, welcome to the show. Hey, Trey, it's great to be back. It is good to be back myself, right? So uh, I was was out of it for a little bit, uh, and that's what COVID will do for you. So it almost felt like I was catching up with you. So you had COVID, then I had COVID, and uh, but you're better, and that seems unfair. <laughs> <laughs> well, life isn't fair. <laughs> now, so here's I, I'm now you also do other kinds of radio shows and things, Ken. Right? I mean, I wish you were just an exclusive politics guys, but we can't keep you just to us. That's and true. I was I was thinking about you this week, and so I'm curious about your musical knowledge. Somebody kind of who was a part of my uh, uh, teenagehood uh, passed away this past week, who, who is uh, a musical. As I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I take a look at my life and realize there's nothing left because I've been blasting it. Coolio died this week, and I didn't know if that because you do a bunch of music stuff. Yeah. So, I mean, is, was Coolio ever in your rotation of things, or was that just a, a footnote for you? Yeah, you know, I'm uh, going to be doing my music radio show tomorrow, and I'm going to be memorializing three or four musicians who passed away this week, and Coolio will not be one of them. <laughs> That's what I kind of figured. <laughs> <laughs> well, I love it. Well, so what we're going to be dealing with uh, is not the de- the premature death of uh, early 90s rappers, but rather we're going to take a look at what's been happening Well, with the Nord Stream is where we're going to start. And then from there, we're going to talk about some fast-moving developments as it uh, occurs to Russia and the annexation of about 15% of uh, the Ukraine. From there, we're going to move forward and we're going to take a look at the ongoing overruling by uh, Judge Cannon of the special master in favor of Trump. We're going to see what's going on there. See, I'm really curious, Ken, about that uh, uh, with uh, the two of us. Um, We'll also talk about McConnell's potentially surprising support of the Electoral Count Act. Uh, And then if we have time, uh, we've got some additional stories from there. But that's where we're going to be headed. So we're just going to take a brief pause and we come back. We're going to talk about the Nord Stream pipeline. Okay, so Ken, this week we're going to start the show off with two, I mean, related in some ways, uh, uh, stories on a larger story that the politics guys have been discussing for a long, long time, and that's Russia, right? This first was kind of a shock discovery this week after multiple leaks in both the Nord Stream 1 and the Nord Stream 2 were discovered. Now, these are gas pipelines that run from Russia to Europe beneath the Baltic Sea for listeners. Now, the Nord Stream 2 was never kind of, it finished sort of, kind of, it was never put into use, but it too was attacked. And the fact that we've had these multiple hits on two separate pipelines Everyone, and by everyone, I mean all the states involved, are pointing to sabotage. But to this point, no specific culprits have yet been announced. The European Union uh, called it sabotage, and officials there lower down have said that the culprit was, quote, very obvious, end quote, but would not go beyond saying anything like that. Here in the United States, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin said it was still too soon to name names 
without an investigation. He called anything else simply uh, uh, speculation. Now, meanwhile, Russia, including Vladimir Putin, have called it, quote, an act of international terrorism, end quote. However, the head of Russian intelligence has suggested that the West is, in fact, covering up the real perpetrators. So there's a lot to unpackage here, including it's not immediately obvious who benefits from this attack. Uh, So for Europe, it appears most experts and uh, outlets are saying that this is a release of three uh, days worth of gas of Germany at time. Um, And the EU kind of wanting to destroy that seems really unlikely. Uh, Similarly, though, it's a little unusual on the Russian side because Russians damaging the pipeline in many ways probably weakens the position it has over the EU. Uh, Because if it can't control the energy, one of the kind of few remaining connections are are really severed. So all we know for sure at this juncture is that large explosions underwater uh, are seemingly the cause of sabotage to the Nord Stream 1 and 2, and that this obviously isn't a natural phenomenon. So one, of course, Ken, is the who's to blame, but the other, of course, is whoever whoever is to blame. What impact will this have on the violent and ongoing situation of the war between Russia and the Ukraine? So thoughts? Well, it is perplexing. And I, I've, you know, I've got no more idea than anybody else um, who's to blame. I, I, I think the only um, one thought I have is uh, in some ways, the perplexing nature of the sabotage is like a continuation of the perplexing issue of even before the sabotage, you know, who, who was taking sanctions against who, you know, the, the Europe was, um, you know, being encouraged, but to take sanctions and not, not buy Russian gas. And at the same time, you know, Russia was saying, well, we're, we're going to, we're going to, um, you know, take sanctions against Europe by not selling them, uh, Russian gas. And I, 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 that whole thing was very perplexing. And this just seems to be an extension of the same to, to me. And I, I can't figure it all out. No, because oftentimes in these international kinds of terrorist events, terrorism by definition, we should get a little wonky here, Ken. Let's get a little wonky. Terrorism by definition, the purpose of terrorism is to scare individuals into particular kinds of policy outcomes or in particular kinds of directions. So one of the things that I can kind of say as a scholar on this front, that that makes this act not so much a, a bit of terrorism as it seems like a different kind of state sabotage. Now, that, that doesn't necessarily explain who it is, but it might help rule some things out. It, it, again, when you have terroristic acts, you're trying to scare people into particular policy outcomes, and that doesn't appear to be the case here. Or likewise, you oftentimes want to take responsibility for it. You want to say, hey, we're the ones who did this. And more is coming if you don't, if something doesn't, right? And we don't have anything like that. Yeah, I mean, just to add to your point, uh, if if it were some form of um, terrorism or even some form of, um, you know, actually, uh, you know, undercover military activity by 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 one of the sides in the conflict, um, it 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 doesn't make sense because. One thing that you'd want to do, one thing that either side would want to do, if if they were trying to disrupt the flow of oil, they would want to, you know, have some kind of carrot attached to that stick and say, you know, either side would want to say to the other, well, if if you if you stop, you know, the West would be saying to Russia, if if you withdraw from Ukraine, we will start buying the gas from you again, or or Russia would be saying to the West, 
if you just let us take Ukraine, we will we will start selling you the gas again. But the, the sabotage actually <laughs> takes that option off the table, right? The, the, the pipeline's been disrupted. So it's going to stay disrupted even if the conflict uh, ends, at least for a while. Precisely. And the other bit that, that's, I mean, to think logistically about this, to kind of, put, again, put on our, our uh, international relations uh, uh, or counterterrorism hats, it, it's not an easy task to get this deep under the, you know, uh, the Baltic Sea. And it's definitely not that easy of a task to have the kinds of explosives it would take in those kinds of locations to make that kind of explosion. Uh, and that too is a complicating question about this. You know, is it now? You know, is it a rogue element? Is it some other other state? But I mean, of course, we could we could speculate on that forever, and that's going to be difficult. I am curious about that, and, and I hope that helps. But can on that kind of second point that I brought up, and you were then talking about it here, what does this mean for the ongoing? relations or non-relations between Europe and Russia, because this, this was kind of the tentative thing that was holding everybody from just having a, a complete severing. Ooh, that, this, this kind of changes the landscape. What do you think is the, you know, the, 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 the few weeks out as we move forward between the two, uh, well, these two particular semi-belligerents? Yeah, I mean, I think that's what you and I were both saying before, that, you know, one of the pressures that was on both sides to try to end this conflict was that Europe needs Russian gas and Russia needs uh, Western money. And so, you know, as long as the conflict was raging, um, that mutually beneficial exchange was disrupted. And what's happened now is that that, that mutually beneficial exchange is going to stay disrupted for a while, even if the conflict ends. And I suppose that means there's less pressure on each side to end the conflict, right? Ending the conflict isn't going to get Europe uh, the gas that it needs, or at least in the quantities that it needs it. It isn't going to get Russia uh, the Western currency that that it, that it needs um, because they're not going to have enough ability to deliver the gas. And so I, I feel like it could um, exacerbate the con conflict and and uh, you know lengthen it. And uh, and I don't I maybe maybe that's you know that analysis is pointing us towards an answer. Um, you know, not a definitive answer, but if we think about, you know, who who could have done this, it seems like who gains might neither be Western European governments nor the Russian government, um, you know, nor the American government. Um, so, you know, maybe 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 it was somebody else. Yeah, one of the things that comes to mind to put it in again, this is you know, we we have to put it as speculation, but you know, reason thoughtful things you might look at. We did see, uh, and uh, the politics guys have talked. You know, uh, uh, Mike and um, and Jay were talking about. For you know, we saw a number of other authoritarian leaders peel away from Putin, right? Uh, you know, the uh, most prominently uh, in India, uh, but even China is not supporting him in the way that they did at the, at the most recent meeting. And so, yeah, you're right to suggest that there are potential other state actors uh, who, who might have interest in lengthening the conflict. What do you think this does for the Ukraine, though? I, I was kind of trying to think about it in terms of the Ukraine. It seems to me that this probably weirdly helps the Ukraine because it kind of will continue to help uh, the EU have reason to continue to support them and not be able to just forget about it in the way that we had talked about at one point. 
I think it's a wash for the Ukraine because although I agree that um, now there's less pressure on uh, Western Europe to to settle the crisis, you know, perhaps on terms that would be a compromise with Russia and then thus not great for the Ukraine. I agree with your analysis on that half of it. I, I think the other half of it's there too that um, Russia has no; um, they have less incentive now um, to try to settle with uh, uh, Western Europe. And uh, you know, I think that that it, to the extent that we were both saying before that the tendency might here might be to lengthen the the conflict and to take away an incentive for early settlement. Um, lengthening of the conflict doesn't seem to me to be great for Ukraine either. It just means that their their country is a battleground for longer. And uh, Russia, you know, um, I mean, even today we saw Russia kind of declaring that it's annexed certain parts of um, Ukraine. And, you know, even as it may be being forced to withdraw from other parts of Ukraine, um, you know, I think it may it may think, well, it can consolidate what it can hold and try to hold it. And, and I don't I don't think that's great for Ukraine. Well, let's actually move into that second story, I think, because I think, as you're rightfully pointing out, these are related. Uh, and so to kind of add some meat to that. So the, the related second story here is the annexation of a large portion of occupied uh, uh, Ukraine. So what happened this past week was, in fact, Russia. Uh, had the largest annexation in Europe since World War II. Russia uh, took control over or declares annexation over 15% of the Ukraines. And, and on Friday, Putin proclaimed the annexation votes that happened earlier in the week, well, sham votes, but as, quote, are becoming our patriots forever, end quote. And further, and ominously, quote, we will defend our land with all our strength, and all our means, end quote. Obviously reiterating his hasty press conference a couple weeks ago uh, over the threat of the use of nuclear weapons. Now, the annexation, as I just noted, comes after sham votes earlier this week uh, where uh, civilians at the point of guns uh, were asked if they wanted to be in Russian control. At best, that was the kind of vote that happened. Um, The call for annexation, though, also comes, Ken, um, with the requirement to call up more troops, military reservists. So at the same time as this annexation is going out, we're seeing this week a mass exodus of many Russians attempting to flee the draft at the same time, especially as those in rural regions are picked up to fight. Now, as Putin is speaking on Friday, and this is just uh, speaks to the ongoing evolving nature of the situation, on the battlefield, they are suffering their worst setback yet. Russian units in the Lehman pocket are com- have been now completely isolated uh, and surrounded, according to military analysts, and it seems unlikely that they're going to be free. Now, pro-Russian outlets are saying that the groups are heroically defending, quote-unquote, um, but it seems likely that heroically defending or otherwise that this uh, regiment is on the uh, verge of being captured. Uh, and this is right there next to the lands being annexed by Russia, which again, we're closing in on this, what happens if and when the conflict takes place in the portions of the Ukraine that Putin has now declared are our compatriots forever uh, to defend by all our means. Ken, what do you think about the combination of these two things? Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot there. Um, the, the yeah, I, I I guess as you said, I, I agree with you that there's m- several related developments. The the development of the pipeline sabotage, uh, the development um, of a lot of surprising uh, Ukrainian military successes in in many areas of of Ukraine. You know, those I think are are closely related 
to um, the timing and the reasoning behind why uh, Putin decided, well, if he can't hang on to all the territory that he was hoping to hang on to in Ukraine, um, and if he doesn't have an incentive right now to try to settle with the West amicably, um, he's going to try to hold what he can. And so he's annexed, you know, the, the, the particular regions of, of Ukraine where the in the east where the, where the Russians have had the most influence um, for, for a relatively longer period of time, even before the full-fledged uh, invasion started. These are areas that um, Russia has considered breakaway regions uh, for, for some time. And uh, in fact, there's a lot of um, these are the only areas of Ukraine where there's a significant component of the population that would be just as happy to be with Russia. So, um, you know, so I think he's going to, um, you know, try his best to hang on there. Um, he, he, we got, we, we had the pleasure of being called Satanists today. We Americans, he called the United States, uh, a force for Satanism, uh, as, as Listen, well as, uh, yeah. I, I am well known for my connections to Satan. He and I yes. go way back. <laughs> yep. As well as, uh, uh, to, uh, totalitarianism, despotism and apartheid. So he accused the, the U S and the West of, of, uh, fomenting all of those things, uh, in, in that area of, uh, Ukraine that he's claimed he's annexed. Ukraine has apparently expedited its application for membership in NATO now, um, and I, I don't think that's going to be quickly granted. Although I think it's a, it's a good PR move for um, Ukraine to, to try to say we've filed this expedited expedited application right now and put some pressure on on NATO to to to, to say something. But um, I, I think you know if 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 NATO was actually going to grant that application in in any quick amount of time then the U.S. and all the other NATO countries would be committing themselves to immediately enter a, a hot war in, in this area. And I, I think that's not a likely outcome. But um, but yeah, th things are moving fast. And I think, you know, the logic of it all is that um, Putin is pretty much having to decide right now, what does he think he can keep and, and trying to really cement his hold on that? Yeah, and and this is I think this is going to come to a head on that front relatively quickly. If you take a look at what's happening militarily, <clears throat> unless the call up of additional troops by Putin leads to significant changes in the course of the war, it seems unlikely that here not in a few weeks or potentially a few months we're going to be in a situation where uh, the Ukrainian forces are going to be on the doorsteps of the annexed regions. And, and that's really where we're going to find out what Putin really means by this and what he's willing or not willing to do and what the Ukraine is, is willing or not willing to do once you get there. Uh, so do you I mean, do you, what do you think about that? I, I, see that as, I see that as being the next big step and I don't see it being that far away. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, I think so militarily, um, the Ukraines, you know, with a lot of help from the West, uh, have been doing, I think, much better than I would have predicted, much better than a lot of uh, comment commentators in the West would have predicted. Um, nonetheless, uh, these particular regions, I think, are going to be the hardest to liberate from Russia because, you know, they they board they border Russia. Um, Russia doesn't have these these same issues of kind of spreading their supply lines very thin, getting deeper and deeper into Ukraine. Like they they can run supplies straight over the border from these regions right right directly into Russia. Um, they can amass forces, you know, right right up close there. Um, they 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 also do I think have the benefit of a more divided uh, population in these areas. You know, in most of Ukraine, nobody wants the Russians there, but in in these particular regions of Ukraine. 
Um, that's not true. You know, the, the, it's probably probably most Ukrainians, even in these regions, would like to see the Russians out. But there's a substantial number of people living in these regions who are glad that the Russians are there. And that's that's a little bit different than the rest of Ukraine uh, as well. So I, I think I think there's going to be a variety of reasons that I would not predict from the fact that the Ukrainians have done such an amazing job repelling the Russians throughout the country. Um, that they're going to be able to continue that that forward press so easily into these regions. No, and I agree, but that I guess that's kind of what leads me to the question then of I see that as being the next tipping point, right? Because then at that juncture, you could potentially have an end to the conflict depending on what Putin and the rest of, of the Ukraine is willing to live or not live with. Um, or you could see that fight hit that territory and whether or not you see, as you rightfully note, I, I think the conflict shifts. At that, I think at that point the conflict shifts, but uh, it means then what does Putin do? Does he open up his arsenal you know, more widely as he has suggested? Uh, I'm just curious if you have any thoughts about that. Yeah, I think the conflict shifts back to the um, uh, international sanctions regime and not to the direct uh, military conflict. I, I, I think it, it, the, 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 uh, uh, the, the, you know, I mean, I keep predicting this and I've been wrong a few times, but, but I think that, um, you know, the, the, the costs of a direct military conflict uh, are um, in terms of human life and, and humanitarian costs uh, and, and you know disruption to the Ukrainian people um, are you know just just unthinkable like just overwhelming and it gets more and more so if you're talking about a region you know where you're gonna have door to door street fighting and things like that whereas I think right now um, you know even though there've been a lot of Western sanctions on on Russia since the beginning of the conflict um, the West is finding ways today to really ratchet up those sanctions even more. Uh, I think today um, the, the U.S. Uh, enacted um, a, a new round of sanctions aimed at the defense and technology sectors in Russia and also cut off even uh, more uh, Russian government officials and their families from, from global commerce. And um, there's more export controls. To, they're now um, being imposed on any company, institution, or people who provide political or economic support to Russia for its purported annexation, I kind of think that's where the battlefront shifts to. I think if, if you think about what the West is going to do, you know, is it going to send in the U.S. Army and, and the, the English, the British Army? You know, I, I don't really think so. Um, is it going to be able to um, arm up um, Ukrainians on the ground so that they can go, you know, do door-to-door -door street fighting and expel the Russians from, from urban areas right on the Russian border? Um, that might happen, but I, 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 I don't know. You know, but I, what I do think is going to happen is that if there's a period of time where Russia is able to um, assert control there, military control, um, and kind of impose this annexation, that it's going to it's going to lead to uh, 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 crippling sanctions that I think in the end really will um, make it untenable uh, for them to maintain that status and and may may finally uh, cost uh, Putin his his uh, position as a uh, kind of premier for life. So one last question on this before we take a break and, and head on to the second half of the show, and that is to say, I have been reading uh, some more recent work on the life and the history of uh, Putin, and uh, full disclosure, one of my uh, graduate professors uh, was Dr. Karen DeWisha. Uh, 
She and her husband, uh, Adid Dewisha, were uh, scholars at Miami University. He was a Middle Eastern expert uh, and an incredible uh, scholar and professor. And then uh, uh, Karen Dewisha, his uh, husband and wife uh, duo, she was an incredible scholar of uh, Russian uh, politics and actually was the head of the Habinger Center at Miami University. And so I had, she uh, kind of tragically died uh, before her time, unfortunately. And I was reading the most recent take on her work and bringing her work up to date on Putin and trying to kind of get inside his head a little bit differently, kind of think about the institution and the structure. It's been a you know, long time since I've done a lot of uh, Russian reading. And so you, you had mentioned there, Ken, about Putin stepping down. And one of the things that seems likely is that's not in his institutional DNA, neither in the institutional DNA nor in his DNA. And I wonder how threatening uh, of a universe we're in, like, or what might happen in a universe in which Putin thinks he is on the way out. Uh, you, you kind of mentioned that in potentially a positive way. How much do you think that might be an escalator, as a matter of fact, for Putin? I think, again, I'm thinking of this in terms of just having kind of reread and now read more of these things on, on, the, on the character of Putin and the institutional structure he has built in Russia. So how 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 much would would I'm sorry how much would what be an escalator if he begins to actually think that his time is imminent? Oh, I see. Yeah, um, because you kind of you, yeah, had, st- I, you I, had said like hey he he could yeah. be maybe he'd be on his way out and I, I it triggered me to thinking about what I'd been thinking about. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, he's going to try to hang on as long as he can. Um, I don't know what he can do to escalate though. I mean, I think you know the escalation. You know, he's he's basically been militarily defeated in big sections of Ukraine. And I think that, you know, that has weakened his hold on power. It's turned some Russian public opinion against him, but there's not much he can do about that. And then I think in the in the parts of uh, Ukraine that he's announced that he's annexed today, um, I, I think, yeah, he may he may try not to um, l- let go of that because that would be seen as a, a final humiliation that could end his um, end his rule. But I, I you know, he, it may be that it ends his rule anyhow. I think, I think his behavior will be to just try to hold on to every possible thing that he can. Um, but I, I, I don't know that he's going to be successful in doing that. I guess that that's, that's how I would think about that. I don't know if that fully answers your question or not. I have one last piece of that. Cause I, I maybe I, I need to be more explicit. I have been reconsidering the possibility that he would use a tactical nuclear weapon in a localized way if he felt that threatened. What do you think about that? Well, I don't know about that because the 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 geography here is a little bit close. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, dro- dropping, mm-hmm. a ta- dropping a tactical nuclear weapon, you know, 10, 20 miles from his own national border um, is, uh, um, you know, going to, you know, I feel like that's a, a, a that's a, that's going to be tough even for him to do. You know, it's, uh, it, it's going to have a lot of um, uh, domestic repercussions. Um, in Russia, and you know, really, you know, I, I, I don't know. I mean, wh- I don't know what he would gain. I mean, he'd, he'd kill a hell of a lot of people in those states which he's claiming are part of Russia. There'd be, um, uh, you know, there'd be deaths, you know, in Russia as well. Um, you know, and then if he managed to hold that territory because of it, what would he be holding? He'd be holding a territory that he's just, you know, turned into a, a, a lifeless desert. Um, I don't, I don't know. I, I, I hope he's not going to do that. Um, I'd have to think through that a lot harder. 
nobody's dropped any nuclear weapons anywhere on Earth since uh, since the U.S. did at the end of World War II. And uh, I, I think even Putin might not want to break that taboo. Well, on that very uplifting thought, why don't we take a brief pause and we'll come back and we'll move into the domestic side of politics uh, here on The Politics Guys. Okay, so Ken, the last time we were on the show, we had the opportunity to talk about that special master request from Trump's legal team over all of the documents that had been pulled out of his Margalargo residence. And I mean, to kind of sum you up, and, and again, if I don't get this right, just let me know. Your basic answer was you couldn't figure out how in the world a special master would even make sense given what was happening in the case. Uh, and that made a lot of sense. And then yet, for good or for ill, uh, the district court judge Cannon agreed to his special master and Raymond uh, Deary was chosen. Now, however, despite getting the special master, which was in fact uh, the Trump team's request, Dreary has not exactly made Team Trump's life particularly easily. Uh, as a matter of fact, there were two specific items uh, that were not particularly favorable to Trump. One, Dreary had told uh, Trump's legal team that it couldn't suggest that the FBI's description or seizure of the documents was inaccurate without providing evidence and gave them until October 7th, uh, you know, to, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, and gave them until October 7th uh, to uh, explain any inaccuracies with the government's inventory. Now, likewise, it gave them a pretty quick timeline, the end of October, uh, to have to deal with going through the documents. Now, this week, though, Judge Cannon overruled that and stated, quote, there shall be no separate requirement on plaintiff at this stage prior to the review of any seized materials to lodge any ex-ante final objections to the accuracy of the defendant's inventory, its descriptions, or its content, end quote. So, Ken, I, I, I am genuinely curious about this because what you had talked about made a lot of sense and meshed with the things that I knew legally. Of course, I'm not a legal expert, but, you know, I'm, I'm kind of adjacent to it. Uh, so I think a lot, a lot of individuals were surprised. And now to have the judge be kind of overruling on these matters, this doesn't seem normal. But again, this isn't my area. So walk us through this because I have questions, but I, I want to hear you walking us through it first. Yeah, well, so also we should talk about the the decision of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Eleventh Circuit as well. Yes, um, I want to get to that as well. Into- if you think it fits here, please just add that in, and if you know if that goes together in a way that I'm, I'm not seeing, please take yeah, away. Yeah, so 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 the the you know as we talked about last time, um, the, the the this case arose after the FBI uh, executed a search warrant at Mar-a-Lago. Um, and then uh, um, Donald Trump uh, brought a, a civil lawsuit um, uh, after that search. After that search happened, um, arguing that um, I guess some of the documents should be returned to him, and that was the, that was the essence of his civil lawsuit. And so, in in that civil lawsuit, um, he he made some substantive arguments and some procedural requests. And so, his his substantive arguments were that some of the documents taken either were not government documents at all, in which case they should be returned, or some of them that were government documents um, were subject to either executive privilege or attorney-client privilege and should thus be returned to him even if they were government documents. Um, and and his, his procedural argument was that um, there should be a special master appointed uh, to look into his claims about uh, which documents should be returned to him 
and, and make a recommendation to the trial court, um, and and that he shouldn't be uh, criminally investigated at all uh, until after the um, special master had completed that work. Um, so so that was what he asked for in his civil suit. Uh, and uh, Judge Cannon, um, a, 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 I would say somewhat corrupt judge, who um, he appointed um, after he'd already lost the election dur- during the lame duck session at the very end of 2020, um, while he was plotting the coup, um, he appointed her. Uh, not, not a single uh, Democratic uh, senator uh, voted to confirm her, um, but, but he squeezed her through. Um, and she has uh, repaid that favor um, by, um, you know, giving him everything he asked for in, in his order. Um, now, as we talked about last time, you know, certain things that he asked for were just so legally illegitimate um, that I think, you know, Judge Cannon's decision to, to grant uh, some of those things, um, you know, can only be called corrupt because there was no legal basis for it at all. But she did it. Um, the 11th Circuit, um, you know, including a three-judge panel in which two of the appeals judges also were Trump appointees, um, essentially did accuse her of corruption and incompetence. Um, the, the formal legal term for that is abuse of discretion. Um, so they won't use such inflammatory language as, as corruption and incompetence, but they did use um, the legalism for that, which is abuse of discretion, um, and, and did say that her, her, her decision by and large um, was was outrageous and indefensible, and they they substantially reversed it. Um, in particular, they they significantly reversed all the parts of it that um, tried to enjoin the the Justice Department um, from continuing to do the criminal investigation while this document dispute is being sorted out. Um, and they said that the, the criminal investigation can proceed full speed ahead, and that includes the the Justice Department's review of the documents that they already seized. Um, and that although they did allow the um, special master to go forward, um, they certainly are allowing Justice Department criminal investigators to look at every single document, including the ones that um, Trump claims privilege over. And so really all that's at stake anymore in the, in the special master's investigation would be um, whether, um, you know, if the special master somehow finds that some of these documents are privileged, whether that would mean that the Justice Department would have to return them and would not be able to rely on them if criminal charges are brought. Now, can um, I, pause? I don't, I don't want yeah. to pause you too much, but, but yeah. sometimes I know you kind of get down holes and I understand you. But so he, one thing what we're saying here is, is the special master is only going to be related to the civil side of this case, not the way that Cannon had originally ruled. And that's an important distinction. But now the second no, part. No, no, actually, I want to stop. There is only a civil side of this case. No, no criminal charges have been brought against Trump. So the only case is a civil case. Exactly. But uh, but they can't, they could bring something oh, in a they way could, they. Yeah, right. The, the, the Cannon 11th, suggested they could not. Yeah, right, in, that's right. The, Cannon, in her first opinion, said. The, the Justice Department can't even look at any of these documents exactly. and therefore can't continue their, to investigate whether to bring charges until after the special master completes his work. And if the special master wants to return any of these documents to Trump, that'll happen first. And then the Justice Department, after all that's done, can look at what's left. The, the 11th Circuit absolutely just reversed that and said it was an abuse of discretion for her to even order that. Right now, but then the second part of what you were saying there that has has my head kind of turning it as I think about is so you have the the, the special master because Trump's initial claims that are now just on the civil side, as you noted, we have attorney client privilege, and we basically have executive privilege. Yeah, 
But at this juncture, it's not even clear that you can that he can have that kind of executive privilege, even though the special master is supposed to rule on it. And and you were just now starting to talk yeah. about that. Yeah. Talk into that a little bit, because what would happen if the special master would say, well, this has executive privilege? Because that's not how that process works, right? right? Yeah, the special master is not going to say that. He's he's clearly going to follow the, the 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 law, and you know, under the law as it exists today, um, it would not be possible for a, a private citizen to claim executive privilege over government documents. Now, um, just, Justice J- Judge Cannon, um, in her first decision, the one that was overruled, um, when she uh, opened up the idea that there could be executive privilege, she did cite a, a concurring opinion that um, Justice Kavanaugh wrote in, in the Trump versus Mazar's case uh, about his, his tax records, um, where Kavanaugh mused, um, you know, speaking only for himself and not for the court, that it might be possible um, for uh, a former president to still claim executive privilege over certain documents. And I think, you know, even though uh, only one justice ever said that in, in dicta, um, that's certainly, I think, what, what Judge Cannon is going to rely on. Um, but but I, I don't know how that could even be coherent, because in this case, you know, even if you could hypothesize that there that these documents have executive privilege, um, th- there's no th- th- here. He's, it's being asserted against the executive branch, and that's 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 a simply incoherent concept of executive privilege. Executive privilege, to the extent that it's been recognized in Supreme Court case law, it's a separation of powers uh, doctrine that allows the um, executive branch to keep some documents privileged from the legislative branch. But it, but it's it's there's no concept of how it could be used. Um, against the the president and against the executive branch, which is how Trump's trying to use it here. So, you know, I think at, at most, um, if, if a document like this was actually found to be subject to executive privilege, that would just um, mean that it, it couldn't be shared with Congress, um, perhaps that it couldn't be shared with a, a court, um, but it should still be able to be shared with the executive branch as all documents that are executive privileged can be shared with the executive branch. Okay, so you were getting exactly what I was asking about, right? Because an executive branch, like if you say that, what you're saying is you can't share it outside of the the institution of the presidency. Yeah. But of course, the other side of this <laughs> civil suit yeah. is the institution of the yeah. presidency, right? Just to put this in perspective for everybody. And and the defendant is saying, you can't have that institution of the presidency yeah. because I, the institution of the presidency, say that I only get to have it. Yeah. And just to put a finer point on what you just said, it's an actual fact in this case that the president of the United States, President Biden, who is the president of the United States, signed an executive order that said, I delegate to the National Archives in this matter the right to decide whether um, executive privilege will be asserted or not with respect to these documents. And so that was formally delegated by the sitting president and the, and the head of the National Archives exercising that delegated authority has said these documents are not, um, there's no executive branch claim of executive privilege here. So we were only talking about documents where executive privilege has already been formally waived um, by the uh, um, relevant executive branch official who's been given express authority to do that um, in a signed order from the president of the United States. Yeah, I mean, I, I think sometimes when you when individuals like follow the story and the way that these narratives, because we always want to have 
and this holds true for a lot of media problems, we always want to think of these as kind of having, well, this side said this, or this side said that, and then this side has flame, or that side. Even sometimes when they aren't, there aren't equality of claims always, right? It, you know, it, it's kind of like the uh, uh, the issue of uh, 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 of climate change, right? Like, you know, there, there, there's not the, well, and, and the voices on the other side, well, I mean, you could have a voice on the other side, but it doesn't give it the same equal weight, right? <laughs> yeah. You know? And that's a fundamental flaw in, in, in reporting. I mean, and that's something we could do a show on, as a matter of fact, you know, why does media, that's something Mike and I are both interested in. But I, I, I'm, I'm glad you bring that up and, and kind of highlight that, because I think some of that absurdity gets lost. <laughs> yeah. When you just kind of read, you know, NPR's most recent take on it, or when you when you when you take a look at CBS's most recent newscast on it, or whatever, you know. Yeah, and I think Judge Judge uh, Judge Deary, who's the special master, has pretty much already said um, he's not really open to these executive privilege claims, but he he is open to attorney-client privilege claims as he should be because it is possible that there's some documents in there that are subject to the attorney-client privilege. Um, I think a more normal proceeding for for dealing with that. Would have just been for Trump to tell uh, Judge Cannon what documents he thought those were and let her make rulings on that. But um, but but, you know, whether it's Judge Cannon or whether she delegates that to the special master, you know, some somebody does have to rule on whether um, any of these documents are subject to attorney client privilege. But uh, what the special master Judge Deary keeps saying to Trump is. Tell me which documents you think are subject to attorney client privilege so I can make a ruling. And and Trump keeps saying, well, I don't know what I don't know. I can't remember what documents they took. So how can I tell you that? So he's sort of saying I, I need to see all the documents before I can even give you um, a list of which ones I think are subject to um, attorney client privilege. And it's going to it's going to take me months to look through all the documents. So I can't give you that list until after the election. And uh, you know, Judge Deary found that ridiculous. But that's the order that um, just Judge Cannon just overruled. So that's the one that you wanted to uh, talk about primarily. So let, let, yeah, let's have yeah. one last question about yeah. that, you know, and that is, what do you think the likelihood, again, you just talked about uh, uh, the, uh, the circuit court's overruling uh, of um, Cannon. Do you think that, the, 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 that there's going to be an appeal? And do you think that the circuit court will again overrule Cannon on this issue of the delay? I don't know if they'll bother to um, appeal again because, you know, there's kind of diminishing returns on it. I I tend to think that Garland, who's a pretty by-the-book guy, was never really planning to indict Trump before the election. So, you know, on the one hand, you could say, you know, it really looks like Judge Cannon is just doing everything she can to drag this out until after the election um, just to give a political favor to the Republicans. Um, but on the other hand, I think even if she wasn't doing that, um, Garland was was not going to bring down indictments right before the election. So I, I think, you know, really it, it, by by introducing an extra month or two of delay, um, that that may that may not be worth uh, bothering to bring an appeal on. I, I also think, um, you know, Judge Judge Deary will move very expeditiously. So even though um, Judge Cannon now says, you know, Trump's got till after the election to look at the documents and claim which ones he wants to assert privilege on. You know, that, that basically he's not going to all every single document that he's going to end up putting on that list is 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 either going to be one where the Justice Department already agreed. I mean, they've already agreed that some of these documents are privileged and they're they're willing to return them. And I'm sure some of those kind of documents will be on the list um, or else it's going to be ones where the Judge Deary is going to rule with the Justice Department and say, nope, that one's not privileged either. And so we're you know, th th all she's done is built in two months of delay. 
at a time where I think, you know, she may think I'm pushing the indictment back till after the election, but I don't think the indictment was coming before the election. And so I, I think Garland may just may just let this one sit and just live with it. Okay. Well, let's take let's move forward a little bit because we got two more stories we're hoping to get to at least. Um, and the next one is also a big one. It's also on the American side. We're going to move from presidency in the courts. Let's move over to Congress and talk a little bit about this past Tuesday because this past Tuesday, Senate Minority Leader McConnell said that he supports the Senate's Electoral Count Reform Act, which modifies the 1887 Electoral Count Act. Uh, the legislation, which is led uh, by Senators Collins and Manchin, specifically clarifies the vice president's role in an election as solely ministerial and further raises the threshold from ejecting to a, a specific state's electoral college results from one member to one-fifth of each body, i.e. one-fifth of the House and one-fifth of the Senate. The House has already passed a more stringent version of the bill 229 to 203 on Wednesday. Now, the two bills, as I'm noting, are different, especially in terms to how many it takes to object, with the number being raised um, from one-fifth to one-third of the chamber uh, in the House version of the bill. McConnell has already called that House bill, quote, a non-starter, end quote, presumably because he sees that threshold is too high. But the fact that he backs the Senate's version means that it seems that there is likely a possibility to have a a bill passed. And of course, this is in response uh, uh, to the actions surrounding January 6th and the idea that there was a legal argument that the vice president could do more than just recount the votes, that he could actually become part of that uh, process. So, uh, Ken, w- what do you think about the bill itself and what do you think about its chances now that it's got McConnell on board? Well, I, I think the House bill was better, but I think McConnell's Senate bill is the one that's going to pass. I think that the House is just going to have to uh, acquiesce to it, and uh, um, and and that's fine. It's it's good enough, and it will um, be certainly an improvement over the status quo. And I, I think um, you know McConnell it was sort of in a position where I, I think he he had to uh, not agree with the House bill because he doesn't want to be accused of you know being pushed around by the Democrats or whatever. But I think he also realized they have to do something because among other things. Um, if they don't pass any of these bills, then their position would be that no matter how the voters vote in the 2024 election, uh, Kamala Harris can just say that Biden got reelected, right? And I, I think that that actually was the position of uh, the majority of House of House Republicans and and about seven um, uh, Senate uh, Republicans in 2020. The, the position that the, the 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 election doesn't count; it's just the vice president that gets to dictate. And so, if no bill is passed, you know, they, they, I think that that's a, a little bit dangerous for Republicans, and they they should pass this bill. So, you know, the, the, I think they'll they'll pass it, and uh, it'll be you know it'll be a future day where maybe they'll they'll go a little bit farther. That would be my thought on that. So do you like the, is the part that you think is better in the House that there's a higher threshold or was there another piece to that that was more uh, what you liked in the House bill? Well, the House bill um, had judicial review uh, provisions in it that the Senate bill isn't going to have. So, um, you know, if there's, uh, um, if there was, if there were um, uh, attempts in the various states um, for, for um, the relevant state officials to possibly try to certify um, somebody who didn't actually get the most votes as as the winner. Um, the, the the House bill had 
trips to court, you know, right then, you know, before you get up to the level of the uh, um, electoral college. And, and I think that was better. Um, the, the Senate bill, um, I think, does not have that. Um, but what the Senate bill uh, does have is a high enough threshold for uh, objections and also a, a very clear um, uh, statement that the vice president's uh, role is only ceremonial and that the vice president does not have any independent uh, judgment about whether to accept or not accept a particular slate. Um, that that would uh, that that would, you know, the, the, either of those would have been good enough in 2020 to um, to to thwart uh, the, the, the coup plot. And and the kind of the the the, the sham reason legal reasoning behind it, yeah, yeah. Now I mean I think in the House they're going to often be able to get twenty percent votes to object, but in the uh, in the Senate you know I think that's less likely. So I think this really does significantly raise uh, the threshold um, for for what kind of sham objections could be um, people could pretend to take seriously. Okay, so you know we're we're starting to run low on time, so I want to we'll, we'll hit one kind of uh, last small uh, uh, issue. This is something actually I've been covering in my class, taking a look at the ages of presidents over time, and obviously our two most recent presidents have also been our oldest. Uh, you know, Biden is seventy nine years old. If he opts to run again, he's going to be in his eighties. And, and this past week, we had a moment where I don't think anybody would have thought much about it if it was any other seventy nine going on eighty year old. Uh, uh, the Joe Biden, the self-proclaimed gaffe machine, asked where a deceased member of Congress was, specifically uh, uh, Jackie Walarski, uh, at remarks uh, for a White House conference on hunger. Now, as NPR has reported, before making those comments, there had already been a tribute to the congresswoman paid and a video tribute paid. There was all these tributes to her as being deceased, and it's sad that she's deceased. And now he walks up and asks, where's Jackie? Now, instead of just saying whoops, you know, there's a mis- you know, some kind of mistake was being made there. The White House continues to kind of double down that there was no mistake. It was just normalness. Um, and that seems weird. And I, I guess here's my question, uh, uh, Ken, you know, it's not surprising that the 79-year-old guy is going to, I don't know, fall asleep sitting there while the thing's on. But I guess this raises this larger question of, what is, you know, we oftentimes wonder, well, what's too young to be president? Now maybe we're kind of wondering what's too old to be president. You know, what, what does this kind of say about Joe Biden term two? I, I'm not as interested in kind of, I'm not surprised. I mean, 79. But I do think it opens up a question about, I don't think many people thought we'd have 80, 81-year-olds being president of the United States. What, what do you think about that? Well, yeah, I mean, ideally, we'd have a president who was a lot younger. Um, on the on the other hand, I don't uh, uh, I don't draw that much uh, uh, for, about this. I mean, Biden Biden has been making gaffes like this his whole entire career. You know, I think with him, this is not something that's uh, necessarily demonstrating the onset of uh, old age. I think he's, uh, you know, I went to see him, uh, you know, here in Cincinnati probably uh, even before he was uh, vice president. He came here for a AFL CIO picnic on Labor Day um, around 2002 or 2003, and so he was, you know, 20 years younger then. And I, I saw him ask somebody to stand up who was, you know, in a wheelchair, you know. And I think this is this is the kind of thing that he he's capable of, you know. So, um, and also I would say, you know, it's it. it I mean, I would never. I, I'm sure that the day that uh, Congresswoman Walorski was killed in a car crash. I probably read that in the news also. But if you if you would have said to me two or three days ago, you know, um, uh, 
who's Congressman Walorski, um, you know, I, I would have not remembered that she was a dead congresswoman from Indiana. So I think he's it's not necessarily just purely old age that is, explains why he didn't know who this person was or that she was dead. Well, I was suggesting that was, I mean, they had, and that's what NPR was reporting. You know, they had just had a tribute to her that he had watched and then had a yeah. video of her, you know, in memoriam of her that he had just watched right before he stands up and makes the his comments and then the Jackie thing. That's why, again, that's why I was kind yeah. of attributing that. Oh, like, no, I, I, I mean, I, I, yeah, yeah, you can remember something a few weeks ago. No, but if I'm sitting here and my student tells me, hey, my mom just died. And then I'm like, hey, by the way, where's your mom? That, you know, <laughs> I, yeah, think that, I, I mean, again, I'm not going to say that that can't be because of his age, but it could also be that he actually had other things he was paying attention to. And, you know, if, if he was sitting there, he might may have had an earpiece in and people may have been talking to him and he may have been listening to something else rather than listening to the presentation. I, 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 you know, again, I can't rule out that this is a sign of old age, but I also I don't think that that's, um, you know, I don't think that's the only explanation for it, you know, and and I, I guess in the end, you know, I mean, one point you're making, which I, I absolutely agree with and I can't disagree with at all is, you know, a, a guy at his age is going to have a little cognitive loss compared to when he was younger. Um, is is not going to have the the kind of memory or the kind of retention or the ability to work the kind of hours. I'm sure he's not working the kind of hours that Barack Obama worked, you know. But but then again, I don't think Donald Trump or George W. Bush did uh, either. Um, and uh, um, you know, and ultimately, you know, he's got an administration, and for better or worse, you know, a president's ability to be effective is at least as much de- dependent on you know their administration as on. Um, their own uh, personal cognitive abilities. So I guess I'll come out and then ask, I think, the the big question that is going to be start being important as we get through the midterms then, Ken, and we can kind of end the show on this. And that is, do you think it's time that Biden just says, look, I'm going to be a one-term president and starts moving towards helping another Democrat be the next nominee? No, I think that would be a big mistake. Um, in fact, I think, you know, if, if he really uh, doesn't think he can serve four more years, I still think he should run again and get reelected and then, you know, possibly resign after that, Um, because uh, I think he's really the the logic of why he was the nominee in in, uh, 2020 uh, still holds. I think he was the one person that could have some appeal with all the different wings of the Democratic Party, which is a, a diverse coalition that's hard to hold together. And I don't think someone more progressive than him and I don't think someone more centrist than him could do it. And I think he's got the relations with all the wings of the party um, that, that make it possible for him to hold it together. And uh, I think he's got a good record to run on. And even though his public approval ratings have not always been that great, um, you know, I think when when it comes time to actually campaign, um, he'll be able to, to get those up. So I, I think he I think he's he needs to run for reelection. Um, both so that he doesn't start losing power now and because I think he's got the best chance of anyone to get reelected. But I, I think he maybe does need to think a little bit about who's going to be his running mate in 2024. I, I, I'm actually going to have to disagree a little bit, but we, you know, we, we'll have a lot of time to debate on that. I, I think that he ends up handing it to Republicans if he runs again for a variety of reasons. And I do think, uh, pragmatically speaking, that in the same way, it's important not to age people out before they ought to be aged out. But I do think there comes a point where you're, you're it is in it. You had said like, even if you didn't think you could do it, I think it is inappropriate to run for an office that you don't think you could live 
or actually maintain. I think I I think that would be a moral failing of an individual. Um, it, so if you, well, you know, if you didn't think that was going to be the case, but if you said to me, no, hey, it's been done many times. You know, Woodrow Wilson did it, Ronald Reagan it, did it. it, it, it I, would, I, I would say Donald Trump did it. Um, you know, I think it's been done many times. Well, Wilson for sure, and I think that and that and that was a mistake. I mean, him, his wife, effectively, and his doctor running the country is an example of how much a mistake that was. No, it's 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 better. It was a better outcome than if the Republicans had been running the country. See, but when you start at that point, now now you start getting into like uh, uh, almost kind of conspiratorial land, right? Where you say like like if dead people are better than other individuals, I, I yeah, that that's ah, come on, I think you're better than that, Ken. <laughs> that's what I think. I think uh, I think it's more important that the Dems win the election than you know than than exactly whether um, Biden's going to be uh, on top of his game. And uh, so I, I I think that you know he's he's on top of his game enough that he knows what his policies are. He knows what his principles are. He knows who he wants in his administration. And you know whether he's on top of his game on a day-to-day basis to be you know fully uh, um, in command of all the details of governing. Um, I, I think that's less important. And I think a lot of conservatives would uh, think that Reagan did a great job as president. And uh, you know Reagan had a lot of the same um, uh, um, incapacities and disabilities that you're ascribing to Biden right now. Well, I guess we'll have to close the show on the irony that uh, we have Democrats now wanting to vote for dead people. I'm just teasing. Anyway, Uh, (laughs) you know, the old saying is, you know, the dead people vote. But anyway, that's it for this week's show. If you're already a supporter of the politics, guys, we hope you'll consider becoming one. Uh, With our supporters, we couldn't keep this podcast going. As a matter of fact, uh, if I didn't love doing this, I wouldn't be doing it with rebound COVID, folks. Uh, and I hope you'll want to become a supporter with us and get all sorts of good stuff, including the ad-free version of this show, as well as our supporters' exclusive midweek show. Matter of fact, this midweek, we're going to have a bunch of cool things going on. Ken and I are going to be starting our take on the Constitution. It was supposed to start before, but we're going to start it this week. That's going to be a lot of fun. You'll get that by being a supporter. But uh, uh, not only that, we have an interview that I have done that's going to be coming out. That's going to be a lot of fun. We're breaking away from the news cycles. Um, You know, this is areas where Ken and I are experts. I'm really excited to be doing this Constitution series with him. And I would love for you to join along. And the way you're going to join along is by becoming a supporter. uh, And we're going to be getting this. Uh, this week. So you want, you want to join us on that conversation about the Constitution over the next uh, few weeks? Well, that's easy to do. You can become a supporter by heading to patreon.com slash politicsguys. So if you'd like to support us on Vine, uh, Venmo, we're at, at politicsguys. And you can also support the show through PayPal. Additionally, all of our support links are in the show notes as well as on our website at politicsguys.com slash support. And when you're there, you're going to see all the other things, not just the midweek show, things like the Discord group. I'm going to be getting back into that this week after taking a couple weeks off from my sickness. So I'm excited to be back with you all there as well. Uh, If you like to get that midweek show, but you're not in a position to support us financially, we get that. Trust me, I get that. I've got three kiddos. Just email Mike at mike at politicsguys.com and he will get you all set up. Now, whether you're a supporter or not, though, I really would appreciate it if you would subscribe, rate, and review us on whatever podcast app. Maybe that's Apple Music. Maybe that's on Spotify. Maybe that's on, I don't know, maybe Pandora. People, do you all still listen to Pandora? I don't even know. Maybe it's Pandora, but we would really appreciate that. 
You can also always share those episodes on social media. If you've got a question, a comment, a correction, a gripe, uh, you know, Mike always asks for a manifesto, but I'm doing enough student grading. I don't need any manifestos. Smaller, shorter things for me, please. I'm just teasing. Anything you want to send to a share, you can reach us at mail at politicsguys.com. We're also on Facebook and Twitter, and you will find links to all of this in the handy dandy show notes. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilma Marino, Andra Masker, Daniel Toe, Ryan Beasley, and Don Oglesby. We'll be back with a new episode next week. I hope you'll join us then.